0: Welcome to episode 15 of the Language Neuroscience Podcast. I'm Stephen Wilson. My guest today is Rodrigo Braga, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at Northwestern University in Chicago. He's a cognitive neuroscientist who uses fMRI and ECOG to study large-scale networks of the brain with a particular focus on association areas that are expanded in the human brain. He published a very interesting paper about the language network in 2020, and that's going to be the topic of our discussion today. It's called Situating the Left Lateralized Language Network in the Broader Organization of Multiple Specialized Large-Scale Distributed Networks, and it's published in the Journal of Neurophysiology, an excellent journal when you want to explore something in depth and you don't want to be worried about pesky page limits. This beautiful paper comes in at 34 closely set pages. Okay, let's get to it. Hey Rod, how are you today?
1: I'm good, thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I think this might be one of the, it might be the only podcast I've done where the my guest is in the same time zone as me. Is so that right? <laughs> it's also 11 in the morning for you, right?
1: It is, yes. Yeah, we're so- your guests are circling in on you, huh?
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's a very beautiful spring day in Nashville, about 65 degrees. How about where you are?
1: It's also really nice here, yeah. We've had a bit of rain, but right now it's really beautiful. Not too hot.
0: Cool. A good day to talk about language and the brain.
1: <laughs> yes, every day is.
0: Yeah, so, well, you're not really, I mean, most of the guests that I have on the podcast are, I would say, like, language people. I'd say you're mm-hmm. not really a language person, right? You're a cognitive neuroscience that just happens to have written a really interesting paper about language. Or is that, where does your heart lie?
1: No, I'd say that's pretty fair. Yeah, when you invited me on, I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I, I can see why, and the paper's relevant, and I'm more and more getting into language, as it's obviously a very interesting process. Um, but no, my background has not been in language at all. I, you know, kind of avoided it kind of on purpose <laughs> for, for most of my career. Okay. Um,
0: cancel the interview. Um,
1: <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I was in, the, my PhD was in a language lab with Richard Weiss. Uh,
0: yeah. I realized that. Yeah. So you hmm. have actually like quite a pedigree. Um, yeah. So I, I Googled you a little, um, before we met today, um, and I learned that you were born in Brazil um Mm -hmm. and then you moved to the uk like how old were you when you moved to the uk
1: i was seven and i yeah had my birthday like a week after my eighth birthday is the week after i moved to england
0: Uh uh-huh and i also learned that you're a musician with numerous
1: albums that's right yeah after my undergrad i took a couple of years out to be a musician full-time and that's what i was going to do that that was my path
0: Uh uh-huh yeah i took a listen to some of your stuff it was pretty cool um, oh, definitely you. got the Brazilian kind of guitar influence there. I could I could pick that up, and then kind of some more sort of ambient stuff. I don't know how you would describe it. I'm not a musicologist. Yeah,
1: it, it depends which album, I guess. I, I was with a uh, progressive rock band that we called it progressive funk because it was kind of like mm-hmm. funk rock. Um, but then when I went went solo later on, I sort of took took in some of those Brazilian influences and did some bossa nova, um, more soundbury rhythms yeah
0: yeah very cool um but what made you um decide to become a scientist instead of a musician
1: yeah it's it's a weird path because the, I only went to university to do music really i you know I decided I was wanted to be in a band, and so I thought, well I'll go to university that's a better place to meet people and meet other musicians, but I didn't really want to study music formally, so I thought, well what do i what's cool to study? I like philosophy and psychology you know I was always fascinated by the mind and I thought I wanted to study those things in more detail but then slowly that brought me into neuroscience because that, that was the stuff in psychology that I found most interesting. Um, and so after a couple of years of being a musician and having some success but also just seeing that the path was going to be quite um, arduous, sorry, um, I just realised, you know, I was living in my parents' house and thought how many gigs, how many weddings am I going to have to play to, uh, to actually support myself and I thought I just need a job. So I started looking for bar jobs, and then I thought, "Why am I getting a bar job? I have a degree in neuroscience." (laughs) (laughs) So I thought I'll just go back to university. And then when I started, I did a master's first. So so you
0: were like, "Oh, academia—that's like you know—that'll be an easy life when being exactly,
1: (laughs) (laughs) pretty much." Yeah, I was like, "Yeah, uh, you know, my plan B uh, side gig." But I was still doing music during my PhD and, and masters, but. Basically, I just realized that I really loved it and super interesting. I met some cool people. had had the privilege of working with really cool mentors like Richard Wise and Robert Leach as well. Yeah, really and legendary all, yeah, for me.
0: language guys. Mm. But you didn't catch the language bug from them.
1: No, I guess not. Yeah. So w- when I started my PhD, uh, Richard saw on my CV that I was a musician, and he was like, "Why don't you study music?" Um, and so I did. A, my PhD was on auditory processing. Um, I did look at some of the distributed networks and the default mode network, Um, the posterior singular cortex in particular, a couple of experiments that Rob Leach had devised to look at that. I, you know, worked with him on those. But yeah, so until then, there was no no language at all.
0: Right. Um, And then you moved to the US for your postdoc, and that's where you wrote the paper that we're going to focus on today. But um, I was going to ask you in general, like, what do you think about science in the US versus the UK? like what have you noticed about you know cultural differences and whatnot? Mm.
1: Uh, very different, very different environments, and people warned me before I came to the US that you know people work really hard there, <laughs> and uh, the hours are really long and um, so those are kind of scary things, but it's also the science in the US is really valued. so training in the US is really valued, and I really thought I would do a quick postdoc and go back to the UK. But then I kind of really enjoyed the the doing science here. You know, it's, at least the labs I've been working on very well funded. Impar- experiments are really ambitious. They don't have, um, it's, I mean, it, it seems to me at least some of the funding limitations that um, I hear more about in the in the UK. Um, and so yeah, and also the, the PhD programs are longer, and you know people can go deeper into a topic. So that's been something that's been fun to be a part of. And have people really go deep deep into questions rather than from the mentoring end of things, you mean? Well, uh, for both for the student and for the mentor. Yeah, I mean, but you
0: you you as the mentor, you've enjoyed having being working with students exactly. who have got a, a longer exactly p- yeah. part of study. Yeah,
1: yeah, and just to see how their training is uh, prioritised early on, rather than is a, a, more of a rush for papers. I think the three year PhD is quite pushed when you're expected to get three or four papers out of it.
0: Yeah, well I mean talk about Americans working hard. I mean that would require some work, wouldn't
1: it? That's true. Very true, yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean to to say that the Brits don't work hard. I, you know, we all I work too hard for my PhD. Yeah. It's different, I guess, yeah.
0: I remember I was visiting London uh, my friend Fred Dick there a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and I remember he was showing me around um, and he and he pointed up at Kathy Price's office, which we just happened to be walking past and the light was on and he was like that's Cathy Price's office. And I was mm-hmm. like Oh no, she's probably like writing something really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Sunday <laughs> um, morning. <laughs> yeah, no, it was like, I, I think it was like 7 p.m. or something. And mm-hmm. Anyway, um, and so yeah, you got, you got yourself a K99, right? Mm-hmm. K99 R00?
1: That's right, yeah.
0: Is that in progress still?
1: No, that's finished. So I'm on, well, I'm on the R00 phase,
0: Uh huh. which is. The, oh, okay. So it's sort of yeah. in progress.
1: Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So they split it, but it's basically the the same grant. When you get a faculty position, the K99 is a mentoring, uh, it's a training grant. You're supposed to train in a new technique, learn some new skills, apply for faculty positions. And then once you get a faculty position, you get the R00 funding, which is the three year funding. So it's a great, great grant.
0: Yeah. And when did you you have a position at Northwestern? So congratulations on that. I think any position in this current job market is incredible achievement. Um, When did you start?
1: So I I got the confirmation email that the offer, my that I accepted the offer and they said it went through. Um, I think it was it was shortly before the pandemic. But I think it was like January or something where that email came through, <laughs> January twenty twenty, mm-hmm. and then obviously everybody started talking about uh, closing down, uh, shutting down um, job openings and also taking back some offers. I heard some horror stories about that. I didn't experience that myself, but I. Definitely sent an email to say, just want to check. <laughs> Should I still be coming to Chicago? Yeah. Yeah. And so we had to move. I had to, we had to move during the pandemic and then had to start the lab during the pandemic and do, whatever, do everything remotely for a while. Yeah. yeah what was that like? Um, it was a few months into it. So we sort of more used to it. it. I imagine it was hard for, I had one trainee at the start and we did everything remotely, but we managed to make it work. Um, We didn't shut down scanning for too long, which was quite helpful, because we were able to go in and test different sequences. Okay.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's been crazy for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's been forced to do things just that didn't seem like they would be possible. Yeah. And, you know, it's been been rough for everyone. I mean, certainly it's been rough for my lab in some ways, but Mm -hmm. I, I have a lot of empathy for people like, you know, that were in transition at that time. Like, you know, starting a new lab just seems like a whole other level of, you know, challenge. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so let's talk about this uh, really interesting paper that you wrote that I contacted you about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about essentially identifying the language network using um, functional connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was hoping we could start by just kind of, if I could ask you just a basic question, um, which is, you know, what is a network as, de- you know, as defined in this sort of functional connectivity sense? I mean, just bearing in mind that, you know, our listeners range from, you know, students to postdocs to faculty with different areas of expertise. Mm-hmm. I want to try and get everyone on the same page of knowing what it is that we're talking about when we're talking about functional networks.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good starting question because there's a lot of different... Um, interpretations of that, different uses of that word. And my understanding is that it comes from graph theory and how you can have different nodes that are connected by some measure. Usually we, in brain imaging, we look at correlations. Um, And so you have two brain regions, those would be your nodes, and then you'd have a correlation between them would be the link between them. So if you're doing full brain imaging, some people consider the, the whole network, the whole graph, as, sorry, the whole graph as a network. So every brain region is involved in that network. And then you have sub um, subsets of those nodes that form systems or subnetworks or whatever term you want to use. Um, in my training, I've always used that term slightly differently. Um, and and I, in Randy Bachner's lab, they also use that word slightly differently. Um, we talk about a network as being more regions that, are, um, that show strong anatomically connected patterns. And so, we, so we, it's almost like a, a subsystem of the full graph that is what we call a network. And so if I, if I do a correlation analysis of a given region of the brain and I show a correlated set of regions, um, that's what I would call a network. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and there's some evidence of anatomical connections if you look at tracer studies in the macaque. So that's also what we call a network, and maybe you wouldn't see the full, the whole brain being connected using such, you know, a single tracer injection. And so there is that difference between what we're calling a network and what I think graph theory, what they consider a network to be.
0: Uh huh. And when you say regions that are correlated, like what is correlated with what exactly? What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah. So we study the brain using um, functional magnetic resonance imaging, and that measures um, changes in blood oxygenation, uh, a signal called the, the blood oxygenation level dependent signal or bold signal. And what we do is put someone in the scanner and just have them stare at a plus sign or just do something very low level. In our case, it's just staring at a plus sign. We, they do that for seven minutes and we record the activity of multiple brain regions during that whole, the, the whole of that seven minutes. And then we can look at correlations of signal um, from different brain regions that are taking place during that time. So yeah, does that answer you?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm just yeah. trying to get that real mm-hmm. ground, groundwork in. So brain regions are kind of fluctuating in ways that seem almost random, but probably aren't. And then right. they, they will have a signal that's fluctuating in time. And then other brain regions that belong to the same network will have a somewhat similar fluctuating signal. And, and when those time varying blood oxygen level dependent signals correlate, that's what leads you to put those regions together in a network.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. When you look at cor- the spatial pattern of correlations, they, they aren't random. There is a very, um, there are very strong, uh, reliable, reliably observed sets of regions that show high correlations with each other. And those, you can look at the anatomical tracer studies in, in the macaques, and there is some homology there, which builds evidence that these correlations are actually tapping into, um, anatomically connected
0: networks. Yeah. I mean, I think that the first discovery of it was in 1995, right? There's this paper by Biswell that I'm sure you're familiar with, um, Mm. where they put seeds in some motor region and then, you know, look at regions that are correlated with that. And what they end up is like mapping out this really nice set of motor areas. Like, you know, it's, you know, the homotopic part of motor cortex, there's like supplementary motor area on the midline, maybe even some brainstem motor areas. So it sort of became apparent that like, you know, these spontaneous fluctuations were meaningful. Um, but you know, and then that continued in there's thousands of papers about it as, as we both know, um, but precious little, um, I mean, and there are these well-known networks, but like the language network never really popped up much, right? I mean, we've got these well-known networks like default mode, you know, you can get motor and visual and frontal parietal and salience or whatever you want to call them all, but never language, um, Mm -hmm. almost never. So (laughs) why, um. What was the initial observation that made you think you could somehow parse out a language network from this functional connectivity approach that no one had really done before?
1: Well, just before I answer that, I'm curious to know what your perspective was because as someone coming from a language perspective, you would see these resting state maps, network maps, and you how was that for you? You wouldn't see a language network? Did you just think this is all, this isn't true, this is oh, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I thought it was true, um, I, I mean, Getting into some, I mean, I guess, like, there's this paper by Steve Smith, I think, from 2009, um, Mm -hmm. that does show this, um, like, left-lateralized and right-lateralized variants of the frontoparietal network that they speculate Mm -hmm. that they're seeing language there, like, that you know, that one of them is a language network and one is not. Um, And then, you know, I guess there's Jeff Binder's work on the relationship between the default mode network and the semantic network. So Mm -hmm. I guess my... Prior, prior to reading your paper um, was that language regions were getting kind of, um, I don't know I'm looking for the right word, like dragged into other related networks such as mm. default mode, front parietal maybe even ventral attention, um, and that we weren't seeing like a coherent network emerge using most of the approaches that were yeah. commonly used. But no, I never, I never thought that resting state was was bunk. Oh, I mean, I think that most <laughs> of the studies that are done with it are bunk. <laughs> but the fundamental concept is great,
1: right? Yeah, I mean, I was just curious because I I came at it from the resting state world, so I sort of was curious to see what your perception of it was. But so a couple of things. One is that even within the um, the field of language, I mean, I listened to your interview with Eva Dorenko, and she had been making this point for a while that to look at, to study language and to study specialization, we need to look within individuals, obviously training within Nancy Can-Wesher, who have been doing this and others in the field of vision, they've been looking at within individuals for a while, showing that you can actually see much more detail and you can separate things by looking with individuals that you don't see in the group average. Um, so there were hints already that to study language, you need to do, you need the high resolution imaging, you need to focus within individuals, you can't do group averaging. Um, But we, I came at it from a completely different, I I came at it from a completely different uh, perspective. So I was interested in the default network. And so we were trying to understand that organization and the language network sits right beside the default network. And so as we explored the anatomy of the default network with the newer techniques that we've been developing, another network just popped out of the data and was like, oh, this looks like it could be a language network and it's so reliable. We can see it within multiple individuals. Right. It's kind of an accident in a way.
0: I guess I'm just going to note for our listeners that the default network is this network of regions that's deactivated to a very wide variety of tasks um, as originally observed in 1997 by Shulman et al. And the most prominent ones, prominent nodes of it being the bilateral angular gyri and, so, and as well as several midline regions, maybe anterior temporal. And yeah, so the adjacency to language is clear. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so you, you kind of notice the language network popping out and then this paper is, you know, you kind of deep dive into exploring the language network in relation to the adjacent networks. Um, so can you tell us, um, in the first analysis you do, you kind of have this seed based approach. Can you tell us about how you selected the seeds and what you saw when you put seeds in those regions?
1: Sure. So, um, a little bit of background is that, um, like everybody else in the field of functional connectivity, we had been doing things at the level of the group, um, which is when you scan multiple individuals, you align their brains, and then just average uh, maps across individuals to get better signal. Um, just when I started my postdoc, a paper had come out um, by Russ Poldrack, and Timothy Lauman and the Petersons group, Steve Petersons group, where they had basically collected so much data from an individual that they could make the same maps, but from at the level of that individual. So they didn't need this group averaging step, which um, is actually quite catastrophic because it tends to blur. Um, you're just basically blurring across anatomical boundaries because every everyone's brain is different. Um, and so this paper came out that was, that was showing that you could define these networks with precision within individuals. And we basically took that idea and just ran with it, basically. And so we what we did is we collected lots of data, lots of high-quality data um, from, lot, from a few individuals, just from four individuals. We had them come in 24 times for 24 different MRI sessions. We collected hours of data for resting state analysis, but also loads of different tasks. Um, we didn't really know. You know it was quite an ambitious project that I coded these tasks with a postdoc called Matt Hutchison in Randy Buckner's lab and we had you know I can't remember how many in our know, 15 different tasks one of which was actually a language task which we just collected it was Ed Fedorenko's language task um, we had functional localizers for motor cortex for instance um, that became really relevant later on but basically we had all of this data and then the idea was just to take a look and see whether we could observe any new features of brain organization um, so that's the context, and so when then we decided to you know, how are we going to actually study the anatomy of the default network? Well, a great way to do it is to do this seed-based uh, functional connectivity approach. Basically, involves picking a region of the brain and then looking at the correlation map. Um, so, what we set up this um, experiment where I would just pick different seeds within an individual's brain and then just look at the resulting correlation patterns to see if we could detect a robust network. Now, there are certain issues with that, i not sure if, you know, if your listeners will care about, but uh, they, <laughs> might. they might, basically anywhere you select a seed, you're going to see something, right? And mm-hmm. so we had to determine a couple of rules to sort of, det- to narrow down the search space. Um, and one was that we wanted really high correlations. We wanted um, the seed based cor- correlation map to show really robust correlations um, as opposed to a more diffuse correlation, which happens when you're in between two functional regions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the uh, the task that that Randy assigned to me was show me two networks that are side by side, both of which are robust correlations, um, but uh, but occupy distinct regions of the brain. Um, and so that's basically the the, the full task was that. And so I just started selecting seeds and trying to find which seeds actually captured some of the networks that were evident in that person's brain. Um, And some of the first few images that I showed him were two networks that looked really similar, but they were spatially shifted along the cortex. Um, And both of those networks fell within the bounds of the canonical group-defined default network. Um, And so that was the first um, inkling that we got that, oh, we can actually see new features here when we look within individuals.
0: So was that a subdivision of the default mode network into what you call in your paper dna and dnb or are you talking about parsing out the language network from the default network
1: so right now i'm talking about splitting the default network into two networks Got default it. network a default network b okay conveniently named um, and so so that was the first insight but while i was doing the c-based approach occasionally i would move my seed more ventrally into the lateral frontal cortex and i would see this really striking, robustly correlated network that had large regions in the inferior frontal cortex and the lateral temporal cortex.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, here I was just looking in the left hemisphere typically. But when, when, you, when I looked at the right, it would also have smaller regions on the right hemisphere, but they were shrunken in size in comparison. Right. So it was left lateralized, which to me was like, this, this is clearly a la- must be the language network.
0: Yeah. You'd spend enough time with Richard Wise to know the language network when you saw it, huh?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, yes, for sure. But also, like, you know, neuroscience 102 is like Broca's <laughs> area and Wernicke's area.
0: Right. So, so where were your seeds for these default mode networks? Like what brain region were you poking around in exactly? Was it like in the MFG or something?
1: It was close. It was actually more dorsal in the superior frontal uh, gyrus. For the default network, it was roughly around there, but some subjects I couldn't find a good seed, so I'd move it around and go a bit more ventrally. Um, and yeah, if I if you go ventral to the middle frontal gyrus and then posterior towards the central sulcus, there's a really strong uh, language region there, which um, in Matt Glasser, uh, his nature paper, they talk about it being region 55B, uh, which they also attributed to language network. It was one that I didn't know about until Coming across it, uh, David Summers has also looked at that region with regards to auditory working memory, I think. Um, so something that had been studied, but just when I was searching around, kind of naively just popped out that that was connected to uh, more inferior frontal regions and lateral temporal regions.
0: Right. So that's where you end up placing your seeds in your paper, right? In your first seed-based approach. So like that's where you kind of have your starting seeds.
1: In the language network, exactly. Yeah. That region 55B.
0: Yeah. Um, and so, in the paper, you you know you show that when you put a seed there, you basically light up not only Broca's area, which is ventral to that, um, but something like Wernicke's area in the left superior temporal sulcus, ish, mm-hmm. and both sides, um, as well as several other smaller kind of but rather reproducible language regions, right?
1: Yeah, and and even the the you know so-called Broca's area we typically see multiple regions there that circle around the operculum. And, you know, some subjects, you have three, what look like three distinct regions in the IFG. Um, So I don't know what to call all of those Broca's areas or, you know, but just say what we, just describe what we see. We do see multiple regions there. We see that area 55B1 that's more dorsal. And then along the lateral temporal cortex, you have multiple regions that often just, you know, a large swath swath of cortex, that seems interconnected, Mm -hmm. Um, extending all the way to the temporal pole, which again, we know is important for language from semantic dementia patients that have atrophy there. But as you say, we also saw these other regions that we didn't expect. We saw along the midline in the dorsal posterior cingulate cortex, there was quite reliably a small language network region there. Mm -hmm. Um, similarly, Similarly, in the middle cingulate cortex, another small region. In the inferior temporal lobe, we'd see a tiny region of the language network, and sometimes even in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is a hard image, a region to image, we'd also see this tiny region of the language network um, consistently enough across individuals. It wasn't always there, but it was there consistently enough that we thought, oh, I think this is part of this extended network. And what was interesting is that when we, you know, my initial, I initially was super excited, like, oh, we found all these new things that have never been described, but then when you look in the literature, there are instances of people describing a language network that has those regions. A famous, pa- um, Famously in the paper by uh, Lee in 2012 and Hacker in 2013, they used a more um, advanced task map informed way to parcelate the brain using functional connectivity. And if you look at those maps, they do have these tiny regions right. where we saw them. Oh, that's cool. So it was, which is cool. Yeah, it was just reinforce that those are probably real as well. Yeah.
0: Um, And then you found that if you put the seed in other nodes of your language network, you would also be able to kind of produce the network wherever you started, right? You didn't need to start only in 55B. You could start it anywhere and kind of see the same thing.
1: Exactly, yeah. You could put it in the inferior frontal gyrus and the lateral temporal cortex. And I think we put it uh, the seed in speech SMA, pre-SMA region not what you always could see define the network
0: yep okay so that's like your seed-based approach and then you have this whole other approach that you use extensively in this paper too which is this k-means clustering right so can you um explain how that works and and what
1: you see with that approach sure yeah so one limitation of the seed-based approach is that i had to manually go in and select seeds to define the network and somebody could argue that I just found very unique seeds that don't really represent the organization of the brain. Um, you know, the unicorn seed that I picked just so happens to look like the language network. Um, and there are other, you know, that, that's a fair criticism. There are other criticisms. Like when I select a seed in a given region, I actually bias all the correlations there because there's a spatial bias regions that are close to each other just tend to be more higher cor- uh, have higher correlations.
0: Oh yeah. Um, whatever seed you choose, the next door voxel is always going to be the most interconnected voxel in the brain.
1: Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so, so that's, a, you know, these are good uh, things to consider when looking at seed-based connectivity maps. Um, so another way to do it is to just do a uh, data-driven format that doesn't involve me actually selecting anything manually. And there are different ways to do this. There are more advanced ways to do this. We just did a K-means clustering approach, which basically takes the connectivity pattern of each voxel or each vertex, if you're on the surface, and then it clusters that, cor- that connectivity map. Um, it clusters those connectivity maps from each vertex. And so at the end, you get a map that's which vertices have similar connectivity patterns.
0: Oh, okay. So you're not clustering like the resting state time courses, you're clustering the connectivity maps that would be generated from each voxel when using it as a seed. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so that kind of produces the same thing, um, more or less, right? You replicate your language network.
1: Um, you do, you basically replicate it Some regions change in shape because of the spatial bias, but yes.
0: Yeah, and then reading your paper, like that's the point where you suddenly show us the right hemisphere for the first time.
1: And -hmm. I was very excited
0: because like, you know, up till then I was skeptical. I was like, okay, you're showing me something that looks like a language network, but like you're only showing me in the left hemisphere. Like, um, is this, you know, does this have that hemispheric bias that we would expect? And then you do your k-means and we see that it clearly has a leftward asymmetry.
1: Right. But I mean, that's exactly right. So we clustered the whole brain right and left hemispheres and it still produces a map that is left lateralized in the sense of having larger regions on the left compared to the right. And that that's cool in itself. And um, because if you use a parcellation technique, given this spatial confound, sometimes it can split a network into a left hemisphere version and a right hemisphere version. Um, and so it was we, it was cool to see that in this case, it didn't do that. It was still they were still bilateral, but larger on the left than on the right. And when we then took, after seeing that, I then took the seed base approach, put the seeds on the right hemisphere, and it again showed larger regions on the left for some individuals than on the right. So they all sort of supported each other, which was good.
0: Yeah, cool. Um, okay, so then you do something very cool, which is you kind of connect it to task activation data, and you had... I don't know whether it was wisdom or good fortune that you got a good task from, from Ev. Mm-hmm. And um, cause you know, not all tasks are as good as each other. That's for sure. Um, but you had a good one and uh, you looked at the correspondence between um, your putative language network and um, the regions that are activated by the, the language task, which is listening or it's reading sentences
1: versus reading pseudo words. Um,
0: and what did you see?
1: Yeah, so we saw a really striking correspondence that I I was not expecting when we looked when we compared the two maps. And first of all, credit to Randy Buckner who decided to collect that task. That wasn't a decision that I made and credit to Ev Fedorenko who devised the task. And you can see in the resulting maps how well controlled um, that task is. Um, But yeah, so when we looked at, when we compared the functional connectivity map derived from parcellation with the task activation map, they were just, it almost seemed like it was the same map in a way. Um, the boundaries sh- of, of regions that showed task activation overlapped um, in striking detail with the regions that showed connectivity using correlation. Um, and it wasn't just the case that it, you'd see that in the, the main language regions like IFG and uh, inferior frontal gyrus and middle um, and superior temporal gyrus. Um, you'd see that throughout the whole brain. You'd see that, and even in these smaller regions that I described in the posterior cingulate cortex, middle cingulate cortex, you'd see evidence of task activity. And that's super cool because it's a completely different data set, different mm-hmm. analysis. It's a contrast rather, you know, task activation contrast rather than a correlation map. And yet they're showing you the same map that tells you something about something.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, it tells you that it's real um how did you feel when you saw that correspondence between those two data sets
1: uh i felt excited but i was like i must have done something wrong because <laughs> <laughs> it was too good it was too good yeah it was, yeah so i checked other the subjects i rechecked the data made sure i had the contrast right and but yeah it was, i was i didn't expect it to be such a close match it was really impressive
0: yeah i thought so too um and we talked a bit about like the, the lateralization and how it it tends to be in you know left greater than right um but That's not what you saw for every subject, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. So we, most subjects were left lateralized, and, but to varying degrees. It's important to say that in every subject, we saw language network regions on the right hemisphere. Um, even if they were really, really small, they were still there. There were still hints of them. Um, but most subjects had, were bilateral in the sense that they clearly had regions on both hemispheres, even if they were slightly larger on the, on the left. And we did try to quantify that as a percentage of the total uh, cerebral hemisphere that was in the language network. Um, Most subjects were left lateralized. And then a couple were really bilateral. You couldn't say one was larger than the other. And we had one individual who was completely, um, very strongly right lateralized. And the, the cool thing there was we had the task activation maps because, well, two things. One, we initially identified the language network in the left hemisphere of this subject. Just by looking at the distribution of regions, it's like, okay, we think this is the language network, but the regions are really small. That's frustrating. And then when we looked at the right hemisphere, it had really big regions of that same network. Um, But then when we looked at the task activation map, that again seemed to match the correlation map. So this person also had stronger right hemisphere language task activity than the left.
0: Right. So you have concordance between laterality as determined by the more conventional approach of a task versus Mm -hmm. your novel approach of, I mean, I guess it's K-means based at this point at the paper, right? Um, So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm sure. And Mm -hmm. it it wasn't even just that one subject who was right lateralized. I mean, you were lucky to get a right lateralized person because they're pretty rare, you know, like you have 15 Mm. subjects or something. How many subjects do you have? 18 subjects? I I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, your, your chances of having a right lateralized person would not be high. At in, with 18 random individuals but you got one and then you also have those bilateral people and, and they also kind of replicate right um between the task-based and connectivity-based approaches
1: yeah that's yeah the, these are all really good to see the, the right hemisphere lateralized person was the exception that proves the rule that there is a correspondence between them between the functional connectivity maps and the task activation maps the bilateral ones were also just uh, good validations. and But again, all, all the subjects had some degree of bilaterality. So that was good to just see that replicated across subjects. And just to emphasize, the maps weren't perfect. If you look at the maps, you can see regions where it doesn't match. So it's not like maybe, you know, I don't want to oversell it. There were definitely regions that didn't correspond across the, the two types of analyses. But if you look across enough individuals, the the pattern is that there is a really strong correspondence.
0: yeah. Now, what's an example of um, a finding that you saw that was where you'd see something different in the activation map than in the connectivity map?
1: Um, those were largely not as consistent. When, when we saw discrepancies, they weren't as consistent across individuals. But there were regions, um, for example, sometimes in the um, angular gyrus, or inferior parietal cortex, we would see a region in the task activation map that wasn't, Usually there in the correlation map. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in some individuals, you'd see hints of other networks like the default network or the dorsal attention network that's involved in attending to uh, the outside yeah. world.
0: I mean, wasn't that bit of the angular gyrus that you often saw kind of, I mean, that was part of the default network, right? In
1: those p- individuals? Yeah, it could, it could have been. It could have been. It, we didn't look at it in enough detail, but.
0: and. I- I mean don't you think it's not that surprising that you wouldn't have perfect overlap I mean it's all, it, because I mean it's not like a task could be expected to identify only one brain network right it's going to draw on multiple you know cognitive and linguistic processes you wouldn't yeah. you'd expect to get a bit of something else right i mean let's say for instance suppose there had been a button press as part of the task that wasn't controlled out in the way that it is you know, then you would expect to see like a task would activate language network and some motor network, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so like you wouldn't really expect a one-to-one correspondence, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, I think, speaks to the strength of the task that we did see that much correspondence. Um, but for instance, if someone found the, the non-words uh, condition very difficult, then you would expect to see other regions that would be recruited. Um, it, initially, when we piloted, one good thing about the approach of focusing on individuals is that you can, test, scan someone a couple of times. And if they're not good candidates, you just recruit somebody else rather than scan them 24 times and get bad data. And so initially when we piloted, like one individual in particular worked out the timing of the task and when the button presses were going to be. And so they would just close their eyes <laughs> and like snooze for the seven, 15 seconds, whatever it was, and they wake up and press the button. And so we, you know, we, we monitored their eyes and made sure that that wasn't a factor in the, in the actual data. But that's definitely something Something similar could be happening that we aren't able to track.
0: Right. Yeah, so this correspondence that you have between the laterality um, raises the possibility of a clinical application, right? So, um, you know, part of my job, we do language mapping, pre-surgical patients, and there's two questions that you often want to address, which is, you know, lateralize, like which hemisphere is language lateralized to, and also where is language localized within the dominant hemisphere? Um, the fact that you can do this in re- from resting state data um, has a lot of potential because there is a small subset of patients that um, might not be able to comply with a task. Have you mm-hmm. thought about um, you know, clinical development of this finding or do you think you'd leave that to others?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, definitely. It's something I find fascinating and I think I definitely see the utility of it. Um, Typically in hospitals, they have a language worker, but I guess you know they use different tasks to try to identify those regions. And yeah, um, I I think it, it needs a, a rigorous large study to actually show the validity of it in terms of improving outcomes. I think that's something that's that's necessary before we can convince uh, clinical teams to to base their decisions on the on the functional connectivity maps. Um, yeah, but I think that's yeah that's a question definitely is interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I will certainly plan to acquire some data to test this um, because I feel very confident about the language maps that we can generate with tasks. Um, but, um, you know, there is a small, like, especially with kids sometimes um, or with patients who are very impaired, like you do sometimes get like an inability to comply with the task instructions and then you don't get good language maps. And, and the question would be whether you might get something, you know, valuable from resting state in, in those people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's super exciting. I think that one, one of the cool things that we found is that it didn't really matter too much what they were doing. Obviously, we talk about the resting state, but it's an unconstrained state. Somebody could be doing multiple things like remembering the past, thinking about the surroundings, feeling very uncomfortable and angry at the at people scanning them or putting <laughs> them through this. Um, and so we don't really know what's happening in the resting state. But it was, it's assuring, reassuring that if you look at a different task, so we looked, we did we computed correlations during the language task. We computed correlations during the motor task, which um, involved making th- finger movements and tongue movements, for instance. And the maps, the correlation maps look very similar throughout that. To, to my eye, they're very, very similar. And so, you know, we've even collected data during movie watching because it seems to be better for the participant. It's less boring than, than seeing, sitting in a scanner for an hour, but yet we can still see the same maps. So I think, especially for kids, that's something that could really be useful.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it'd be very cool to just be able to put the kid in the scanner, show them a movie, and just collect functional data incidentally and then get mm-hmm. what you need from that. That'd be really useful. Yeah. I, I mean, it seems, it seems um, quite plausible to me that that could be developed. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so, you know, you, in your paper, you relate the language network to several other networks, um, default mode A, default mode B, frontoparietal, is there another one that I'm forgetting?
1: Uh, the salience network?
0: Oh uh, yeah, salience network, like also called singular opercular. Um, mm-hmm. How does the language network kind of lie in relation to these adjacent networks?
1: Yeah, that's something that is, you know, one of my favorite findings in that, in that paper is just, um, we talked about how, the, when we looked at the organization of language network regions, it wasn't just the key Broca or areas that were coming out, There are also these other smaller regions that came out, like in the posterior singular cortex, for instance. Now, the reason that was cool is because when we had been studying the default network and we managed to fractionate that into two separate networks, both of those networks looked like copies of each other in the sense that they had regions that were side by side in multiple parts of the brain. So it looked like you just took one network, copy and pasted it, and then just shifted it spatially along the cortex, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are very cool ideas, uh, Randy's written about this quite a lot, about how that might um, come to emerge during developments, that you have a basic wiring pattern. And as the brain is expanding during uh, infancy, different parts of the cortex start to specialize, but they inherit this broad organization. Um, and that's why the networks look similar to each other. Um, so that's, that was super cool. But when we looked at the language network and we included those smaller regions, the language network just looked like another example, so another copy-paste of the default network uh, distribution. Just now it's shifted towards um, classic language regions, like the IFG and the lateral temporal cortex. And so that just showed that the language network is another instance of these distributed association networks. Um, It also raised questions about why did these regions specialize for language, because the the more, most prominent regions of the language network in terms of their size were in Brocker's and Wernicke's areas, right, mm-hmm. near, near to. Um, and those regions are right near to auditory cortex. They're right near to tongue, somatomotor regions. And so to me, that implies that nearby association cortex has specialized for language because of the influence of nearby sensory motor regions that are important for language. Um, so so those were, that was the, sort of the coolest uh, thing for me, which really has sparked has sparked questions for me about what to re- research next, and that's something that we're doing in my lab. Um, and so that yeah, that sequence of networks that goes from sensory regions all the way up to the language and beyond to the default network, mm-hmm. where they all have a very similar shape but just spatially shifted along the cortex, looks like this idea of a broad gradient from unimodal sensory to the default network and the language network fit really well within that gradient.
0: Right. So you kind of see it as like an intermediary between sensory representations and like the ultimate amodal semantic conceptual representations of the default mode network.
1: I mean, at least spatially, that's, it sits right in between those, those um, brain areas. And, you know, I'll leave that, you know, better than I do about uh, linguistic theories and how that maybe is exactly what you need for a brain region to be specialized for languages to sit somewhere in between those like,
0: I mean, yeah, I do think that language sort of plays a mediating role, but I mean, it, you know, meaning has to be translated into a transmissible form, which involves, you know, either the auditory modality or the visual modality in the case of sign. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so do, does language have a does, does the language network have a particularly special relationship with the default mode network, or does it also kind of have a similar um, juxtaposition to the parietal network, for instance, which is another, network that I think is in very much in little language territory.
1: Yeah, they, they, were both, they both had regions that were side by side. all three of those networks was, you know, had a very complex detailed organization of regions that were hard to separate unless you look within individuals that have a lot of data. Um, It's possible that the organization, the spatial layout of the language network better matches what we call default network B in the sense of where, the, just where the regions are. And so, but I think it just, it will vary so much from individual to individual that, you know, I think it would be easy to mix all three of those together. If you are doing a group average approach where you're blurring things together. Yeah. So yeah, I think there will be evidence that, that would be a good rationale for why all three of those would be mixed together in password.
0: Okay. So, you know, one of my favorite papers Prior to yours on on resting state parcellation is the paper by Yo et al., which from, also from Randy Buckner's lab, yeah. And and I know that that paper must have been influential on on your paper. Um, but in that one, what they don't really get a language network, even though they're using a rather similar approach, um, like this k-means on connectivity maps. Do you have any idea why? You get this language. now. Is it is it because of the individual approach that you get it, and and the Yo paper doesn't? Is that the key
1: difference? I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, basically, they you know completely landmark study was hugely influential. Um, they scanned a thousand individuals. I think it was more like three thousand. But that those maps in that stud in that paper are from a thousand individuals um, using cutting edge techniques at the time. The paper was published in twenty eleven. So, cutting edge techniques just before. In the years before that. But that still relied on this idea that you have to average data across individuals, you know, aligning them as best as you can anatomically, but you're still averaging across individuals. And just the shape of, if, if you look at our, our paper showing the language network in different individuals, the shape of the regions will change, the exact anatomical location of the region will change. So even if you align it as best as you can, when you average across individuals, you're just blurring across things. And I think that's ultimately uh, the, main, the main thing. It also, perhaps because we're doing a resting state task where people are introspecting and doing things that the default network likes to do um, or shows increased activity for, like remembering, um, the default network is one of the easiest things to, to detect in, in functional connectivity analysis yeah. of resting state data. And so it's possible that that high signal there just completely overwhelms the, the language network that was really closely juxtaposed with the default network. Um, and just to say that, uh, more recently, more advanced algorithms by Thomas CEO's Group, they've been able to show the language network even in group average data, which is of a slightly higher quality. So, it is possible. I think it was just uh, just beyond the edge of their detection limits to separate those things.
0: Right. Cool. Yeah. It's funny. Like I'm <coughs> looking back at his paper with your paper in mind. In this, he has the seven network parcellation, as I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, you know, the default mode network is very clear. It's very, I mean, not everything in his seven network version is, is symmetrical. Right. And he's got the default mode as one of the seven networks. And then he goes to the 17 network version and then it actually does fractionate, um, in an interesting way. So, um, the default mode network seems to kind of fractionate into two, one of which is left lateralized, um, but it's less clearly a language network than it is in your mm-hmm. paper. Like it, it just more like parts of the default mode network in the left break off. And, and in the right, only the ATL breaks off which is exactly the right hemisphere region that is most easy to, which is the most, you know, language involved mm-hmm. node of the right hemisphere network.
1: Right, so, so there definitely hints there.
0: There's definitely hints. If you go back, at, like I've looked at this, I've looked at Yo's paper like dozens of times, if not hundreds. And I've never really appreciated this before. So I think it's like hints that you see once, once you've seen the, the finer
1: resolution version that you
0: um, yeah.
1: put together. Well, check out Ruby Kong's paper. I think it's 2019 where they do, they do show the language network. I, I think in the 2011 paper, there's also an auditory network that's quite broad. It, I'm going from memory, but I think it goes beyond primary auditory regions. And that's probably also taking up some of the language regions.
0: I think it is, especially in the seven network version, but I think it's more auditory than,
1: okay.
0: because I think that, because I, unlike, I mean, I think that most of the STG is just auditory apart from the dorsal STS. In other words, mm-hmm. apart from the ventral aspect of the STG, I think it's, you know, really auditory rather than language, but that's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, um, This is great. Do you think we covered um, all the things that are most important about this paper?
1: I think so, yeah. We talked about gradients, we talked about the association networks and how they have a similar distribution. Uh, Yeah, I think so. We didn't talk about the
0: intermediate network that you identify and that's kind of my deliberate Mm -hmm. decision because there's a limit to what you can talk about in a podcast and it's really complicated and and, uh, I'll just kind of alert interested listeners that there's this other aspect of the paper that would be best appreciated by reading it sure <laughs> and seeing it yeah sometimes you need <laughs> to see know. things yeah mm-hmm. okay well this was great thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about this really cool study
1: thank you simon it's been a real pleasure to be among such illustrious guests <laughs> well as you've had. So thank you for the invitation
0: uh, you fit right in um and i really <laughs> enjoyed it so thanks and have a good rest of your day.
1: Yeah. And before I go, I just wanted to do a quick plug, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, we have, we have we're a new lab. We're a year old at Northwestern University in Chicago, and we have positions open for PhD students and postdocs. So anybody out there who's interested in some of the stuff we've been talking about, please do get in touch. Uh, braggalab.com is where to go.
0: All right, cool. Yeah, that sounds like a really great opportunity. Um, you know, for either a student or a postdoc, um, I'll link your lab website on the podcast website so that people have that link to, if they want to follow it from there. Perfect. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. See you later. Bye. Okay. That's it for episode 15. As always, I've linked the paper we discussed and Rod's lab website in the show notes and at langneurosci.org podcast. Special thanks to Yev Dayechik, who presented and led discussion of this paper in my lab meeting, which made me realize that this would be a great paper to cover. And thank you all for listening. See you next time.